Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SCR, in which we bring you coverage of events around Sydney every Sunday night this month. I'm Steph Leong. In the next two hours, you're going to hear an optimistic vision of 2050. From Australia to Zambia, countries around the world have decarbonised their economies. How did we do it? Join leading thinkers from industry, government and academia for an inspiring yet urgent discussion about the ambitious journey in front of us towards a safe and prosperous planet and what solving climate change in one generation means for our everyday lives. This talk is brought to you by the UTS Big Thinking series. Sign up to the mailing list to hear about future events at events at uts.edu.au. First, we're going to hear from Nikki Eisen for Welcome to Country and then Dr. Sven Teske, Research Director, UTS Institute for Sustainable Futures, will explain how we saved the future. Good evening and welcome to tonight's Big Thinking Forum at UTS. My name is uh, Nikki Eisen. I am your Chair of Proceedings tonight. Um, welcome and thank you very much for coming. Before we commence tonight's proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge that we stand and sit on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, upon whose ancestral lands the UTS City Campus now stands. We would like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of knowledge on this land. I want you to imagine, it's 2050, you're still alive. From Australia to Zambia, countries around the world have decarbonised. We're driving electric and hydrogen-powered vehicles and buses. Homes and businesses are powered by the sun, wind and waves and other renewable sources. Forests have been restored and are playing a major role in reducing greenhouse pollutants and gases from our atmosphere. We have avoided runaway climate change that currently, or in 2019, threatened every person's life on Earth. How did we do it? How did we turn this thing around? How did we avoid the climate crisis? I'd like to invite you to shut your eyes, to have a think. It's 2050, you're still alive, how did we do it? So, opening your eyes, we're still in 2050, but tonight we're going to hear from some experts that played a really significant role in getting us to here, to where we are now in 2050. So the plan, uh, shortly I'm going to introduce Dr. Sven Teske, our keynote speaker. He's going to tell us how we did churn this ship around and avert the climate crisis. Then we're going to have an expert panel and uh, the five speakers will... Um, provide some insights from their perspectives and their sectors of society, uh, and then we'll open up for discussion um, and questions from all of you. Uh, so without further ado, I would like to invite Dr. Sven Teske, Research Principal at the Institute for Sustainable Futures here at UTS to come and join me. Um, Sven... Uh, Sven has over 20 years' experience uh, in driving clean energy change. Uh, he was, for 10 years, the, the Renewable Energy Director at Greenpeace International, and earlier this year, while at ISF, Sven led a new research project uh, with the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation 
Tonight, he's going to share a model, a new model, a roadmap for meeting and surpassing our ambitions to avert the dangerous climate uh, crisis and show how we can do this with currently available technologies and natural climate solutions. Thanks, Fen. Thanks, Nikki. Um, yes, um, I think you um, can open your eyes. Um, uh, I'm, uh, in 2050, I'm, I'm going to be 84, and um, if I think about the retirement system, uh, I guess I just stopped working, um, and uh, <laughs> um, looking back, uh, the climate 9-11 was actually um, in 2018. This is a satellite photo. Uh, this is not a Photoshop. This is a satellite image of last year, um, 11th of September, and you see um, three um, hurricanes approaching the U.S. And at that time, uh, in 2018, um, responsible, um, responsible politicians actually thought, we have to do something. We have to decarbonize our planet. We have to um, implement a global action plan. And we implement a sustainable and circular economy and uh, we also have to uh, understand that the fight is across all levels. And very important, um, climate change, fighting climate change, is not a greenie issue. It is a matter of survival. So at that time, the global trends were already quite uh, in a good direction. Um, the wind and solar power generation market uh, grew and 60 to 70% of all new power plants were actually already uh, so solar and wind and not because there were support programs uh, at that time, it, it was because it was economic. And the majority um, of uh, the uh, market were actually outside the OECD countries in developing countries. Um, we also saw that um, the digitalization of energy, sort of the interconnection of different generation, um, started. It was sort of still baby step, uh, steps, but it started, and sector coupling started. That means um, at that time, the transport sector was sort of isolated, the electricity sector was separate, and industry and heat uh, was separated as well, and that started sort of to merge and to grow together. Um, and then um, the One Earth Climate Model um, showed what we have to do. And very important, uh, there is a, a carbon budget. So we had at that time a carbon budget. What we had to have in order to achieve our target to stay by around one and a half degrees plus. Um, and that was quite tiny. Um, in fact, it was um, nine years of the normal emissions at that, at that, during that time and our carbon budget would have been gone. Um, so we have to combine different measures. We have to combine uh, renewable energy with energy efficiency, and very important, um, also um, stop deforestation and increase reforestation. Um, so it is not uh, that one measure actually made it. It was only those three measures together which actually uh, succeeded. If we would have dropped um, saving the forest, we would not achieve that. We would have ended up with about two, two, two and a half degrees. So we actually had to do this all uh, as a holistic approach. Um, 
the development um, at that time, um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to actually counter a, public, a publication which was called the International Energy World Energy Outlook, uh, which uh, was published every November uh, of the year um, since 1970-something. Um, and they always told us that uh, renewables will just grow as the demand. So the, the, the percentage will always be, uh, be the same. Um, so we wanted to take one of those scenarios and turn it into a revolutional 100% um, renewable energy scenarios with all aspects of those scenarios, including economic uh, calculation, uh, including transport and different technologies. So what we did is, um, and I'm not going through that diagram, I'm just uh, telling you, we actually worked in a big team. Uh, the, pe the team were uh, 19 scientists uh, from uh, the German Space Agency. Uh, two institutes were from the German Space Agency. Um, they were from the Transport uh, Institute and from uh, the Institute for Thermodynamics. Um, then there was the University of Melbourne, uh, which has uh, done all the um, land use uh, change and all the non-energy related greenhouse gas emissions scenario. And there was the University of Technology Sydney, us, um, who did the um, system integration and the, the modeling in one hour steps for all the electricity. We also have done here the mapping. So we, have, we wanted to check um, if we actually have enough space to install all the solar and wind and other renewables in order to end up with 100% renewables. Uh, what we have done is um, we have done um, map the regional en energy potential. So what we have done for each continent and each country, we, we have uh, shown, we, have, we, we mapped um, the, let's say, the wind potential. This is a wind map. And we just um, took those areas which have more than five meters per second average wind speed. That's sort of the lower end of, uh, of uh, sites for wind, uh, wind power generation. And then we excluded national parks, we included agricultural land, we uh, excluded uh, urban areas, roads, rails, and all those different land uses. And then we basically came up with a potential. So there is still some space left. Um, and we have done for this for solar and wind. Um, and then we, we need to, um, once we have all the basically theoretical potential, we have to have some assumptions um, in order to counter the reference case, which we call the five degrees scenario, because we are pretty much on course for five degrees. Um, or we were at that time. Um, <laughs> don't forget my role. Um, so um, the two degree scenario, which is basically a decarbonization with a time lag of, of the energy sector of about five to seven years. So we thought, okay, we, we have to get going in 2025, and then we really dive into that. Um, the carbon budget for one and a half degrees uh, was so tight that um, we said that we can talk in 2019, and in 2020 we actually get it going. Um, and that's very important. Um, also, uh, at that time, um, we were asked, isn't it too late? Um, and then we always said, well, um, if we delay, uh, we might not end up with one and a half degrees, but 1.7 degrees. But if we don't meet 1.5 degrees, is that the reason to just let it go and just leave it to five degrees? 
We said, no, actually not. So let's, let's aim for one and a half, and we are, if we are at 1.6, that's much better um, than two, and it's much, much better than four. Um, so we um, have um, those, those assumptions and those uh, frameworks, and we also uh, answered the question, oh, what's more important, energy efficiency or renewables? Um, and we answered, well, what's more important, to have a good diet or good food production? Um, it's actually not related to each other. You have to have a good diet, but if you have a good diet, you still need to produce food. And it's the same for energy. If you're very efficient, doesn't matter how efficient you are, you still need to produce energy. And therefore, those two are not against each other, but with each other. Then we had Trump, uh, we modeled transport, and not in terms of mobility, that's not possible on a global scale, but what kind of technolo technology can we use to move people around and goods? And uh, while the five degree scenario always went, aviation went up, road transport went, went up, um, mainly cars and aviation, we moved around that system and we thought electric mobility based on uh, public transport is actually the way to go with all the different technology because electric mobility does not mean necessarily that I just replace my, um, my combustion engine car with electric car. It also means light rail. Um, and we saw back to Sydney that it only takes five years till the first um, carrier actually goes through George Street and maybe we learn and then maybe it's even quicker next time. Um, as you hear from my accent, I'm originally German. I migrated to Australia. Um, the week when, when I came to Sydney, they started construction. Uh, and uh, I've never seen George Street without construction. So, um, The key results um, were that, I'm not going through all the numbers, I'm just saying that um, we actually used only 5% or less of the land area required for 100% renewables in order to uh, fulfill our energy needs. In some regions it was more, in some it was much less. Uh, there are a few regions where you actually have to go almost to 10%, and that's the high populated areas um, like in China, like in India, and also Bangladesh, sort of very densely populated regions you need to go higher, but in some regions like Australia we are not even a percent. Um, and then the global energy intensity, uh, very important, how much energy you need in order to generate $1 GDP. Um, that needs to go down, and that needs to go down in any case uh, or constantly and make, sort of make efficiency uh, understandable and uh, measurable. Um, we had uh, an, an increase in the five-degree scenarios uh, for uh, almost 57%, on more than half, while we were actually able to uh, calculate growing GDP, especially for developing countries, and at the same time decrease uh, the energy consumption. This is uh, a mix of many different measures. One measure was that we electrify a lot, and electric um, drives have um, far higher um, efficiency than combustion engines, but uh, we actually have to make sure that the additional electricity is um, uh, generated by, by renewables, otherwise it won't make sense. Um, and then we calculated, um, and that's only a uh, few cost savings for the electricity sector, um, that we roughly, with the additional investment 
uh, we had to do with, uh, for the electricity sector, um, that we can cover 90% of the cost under our cost, uh, fuel cost assumptions, uh, which were sort of uh, based on the IEA, um, that we recover 90% of those costs. And I thought, well, that's actually uh, quite economic. It's not just saving our planet, but also saving a lot of energy and money. Um, that makes sense. In terms of transport, um, we electrified a, a lot um, and also had a little bit of biofuels, but only for very, very distinct um, transport modes. Um, for example, for aviation um, and some parts of shipping maybe, but not for road transports, um, because we, uh, we saw that um, we have a competing requirement for biomass, um, because we not just need biomass for fuel replacement, or fossil fuel replacement, but also for um, materials like plastics and other stuff. So we have a very, very small amount of sustainable biofuels or bioenergy uh, for energy purposes. Um, we uh, did lots of mo uh, mo uh, modular shifts or mo model shifts, which basically mean we try to go from, uh, from aviation to high-speed rail, if possible, or from, uh, from road to rail, and uh, try to make this as efficient and as, possi as possible with lots of public transport. Um, finally, the primary energy, sort of that's sort of what the, what the total energy, uh, including the losses, um, looked like, was that we can actually reduce uh, almost 40%, uh, sort of 20%, uh, sorry, um, based on today. So we can have more people, a higher GDP, uh, in, across uh, the um, developing countries and still reduce energy, total energy demand. Um, and we have a very high share of uh, renewable energy already in 2030. Um, and then there are some things which are quite often um, um, sort of falling through the cracks, and that's bunker fuel. Bunker fuel is the, is the energy used for international transport, mainly more or less half-half aviation and shipping. Um, and this is something where we, we thought we take the um, traditional uh, producer of international energy exports, that's the Middle East for us, um, that's North Africa and Australia, and we convert a fossil fuel export industry into a renewable fuel export industry, which could be hydrogen, which could be uh, synthetic fuels, which is basically hydrogen plus carbon, um, and it could be... Um, based on mainly solar and wind, um, in order to uh, supply uh, like container ships and international aviation uh, with, with fuel. And this is also a way of making a dress transition, because many countries in these regions, like Middle East, North Africa, and Australia, uh, lots of people work in the energy industry. So exporting energy as such is nothing bad. So we thought, um, so they just have to export renewable energy instead of fossil energy, uh, and then we can also have a just transition. Um, carbon, well, that's pretty easy to say. We went down to zero um, and on the energy side, but in order to actually uh, arrive at one and a half uh, degrees, we need to, needed more. Um, what we also found out is that um, the old system of um, dispatch and base load power plants did not work anymore. 
uh, we actually have solar and wind, and everything around solar and wind um, actually uses, is used as uh, a system. So when there's no sun, there's no wind, we use either storage or demand-side management or hydropower or others, whatever the, the resource in the region is. Um, and we need to actually make this a, a full holistic system. And that is a real problem. And it was a real problem for utilities because utilities always uh, told us, but base load. And said, yeah, there's base load, but there's not base generation. Um, and that's uh, a very important thing. And that was really difficult to get this culture out of their heads um, that base load is there, but not base generation. Um, and uh, I will basically skip that and um, go to storage. Um, storage is um, a, a very open field. And I have to say, uh, at that time, we did not really know what kind of storage we take into account. Is it batteries? Is it, is it hydrogen? Is it thin fuels? Um, and in hindsight, I have to say, we forgot a lot technologies we did not know at that time. But at that time, we only uh, talked about batteries and, uh, and hydrogen and, uh, to some extent, um, hydro pump storage. But uh, it turned out that many, many other technologies actually were developed and we did not even know from it at that time. Finally, um, we basically saw that the idea just transitioned to, to move workers from one side to the other uh, is very important because we realized that uh, the fossil fuel industry used the worker as um, I think here you say a rhubar uh, in front of the car to bulldoze through innovative policies. Um, so the workers are used to actually stop innovative policies and say, this person will lose the job. And we thought there is a long-term plan, and that means we uh, will not be surprised, uh, and we are not su suggesting that the coal uh, mine will face out tomorrow. Um, so we actually have a plan, and therefore we can have a long-term um, transition plan. Um, that is basically um, what the um, Paris Agreement says. Um, what, I what I found always interesting in this debate was that everyone agreed that, yes, we need to phase out carbon, but nobody agreed that we actually need to phase out the, the fossil fuel industry, which did not really fit together. Finally, um, we calculated how many percent per year they actually need to decline. Um, and that was the, the fundament for a long-term plan, how to, sh uh, to shift workers from one side to the other. And at that time, in 2018-19, we already saw in, in, Euro in the European North Sea that the former oil and offshore oil and gas worker actually now worked for offshore wind. And that they need the same helicopter, they need, they need the same supply ships, they need the same... Um, um, submarines for underwater welding. They need most of the equipment they use for the gas industry, also for the wind industry. That, so that was in a very easy way to, tra to transit those workers in those industries. And then, back here, last slide, um, we actually made that. And that was uh, a very inspiring uh, process, and it was a hard process. And um, if you want to dive any deeper, you can do this, but also um, you can access the website uh, for um, more information. And uh, as a last thing, I heard at that time that 
there was some movement even at UTS going on to work to move towards renewables. And I think they all want to meet at the 20th of September uh, in uh, 2019 uh, to discuss that. So um, I think that was one of the cornerstones of the Australian concept. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sven. Uh, I'd like to invite you to turn to someone sitting next to you and just have a quick chat around what you heard. What were your thoughts while I invite the expert panel to come and join us on the stage? Okay, uh, uh, we're going to move things forward. Um, I did forgot to forget to mention earlier that uh, if you want to participate more in the conversation tonight, um, people are tweeting wildly. Um, the hashtag to use is UTS Think Big. Um, so please let me introduce uh, our expert panel. We've got Elke Linden. Um, sustainability and Environment Manager at Toyota Australia. Um, she's been there since 2015 and leads the company's strategic pathway towards uh, Toyota's Global Environmental Challenge 2050 of achieving zero net emissions and developing a recycling-based society. We look forward to hearing more about that soon. Moving on, we've got Chris Dirksma is the Sustainability Director at the City of Sydney. Chris has played an integral role in the development of the Sustainable Sydney 2030, a vision for Sydney's future. Also under Sydney, uh, Chris's direction, the City of Sydney was Australia's first carbon neutral organisation or government organisation. Then we've got uh, Dr Muriel Watt, Doctor? Yes, let's go with that. Um, is the, she's a principal consultant at IT Power Renewables. Um, Muriel's been working in renewable energy since 1980. She was formerly associate professor of the School of PV and Renewable Energy Engineering at UNSW and the chair of the Australian PV Institute. Uh, final expert panellist tonight is Professor Brendan Mackey, who is the director of the Griffith Climate Change Response Program at Griffith University. Brendan's current areas of research include ecosystem-based climate change mitigation and adaptation. Uh, so we're looking to hear more about the role the biosphere can play uh, in climate change mitigation. So... My plan now is I'm going to invite each of our panellists to, to talk and answer a question each, and then we'll have a little bit of a discussion. Um, so my first question for you, Elke, is what role did business and industry play in Australia to really shift the national conversation and help get us to take climate change seriously at a national level? Thanks, Nikki. Well, that's a big question, but um, I just start at... First of all, I want to say that it was really important in, in the early days, in the 2000s, that industry acknowledged that climate change is a problem and uh, is um, caused by human activity, so no denial, and really understand that it's a huge business risk, not only, but also risks to the society. So that's the first step, um, that acknowledgement. Then understanding how... Um, how um, the industry or the particular industry, like in my case, Toyota, is contributing to that problem, understanding that, and then building a pathway forward to uh, try to help mitigating that problem. 
So with this, um, Toyota for, was one of the first organizations that um, developed uh, uh, environmental, um, Global Environmental Challenge 2050. It's based on, uh, let me probably show it up there. So this is our roadmap, um, acknowledging that we have to do something. And by 2050, we have to be zero emission. But it's not just zero emission um, in regards to our own operation. It's also zero emission in our whole life cycle. So I've got a next slide that shows a bit our uh, global commitment to, and that's a global commitment. Uh, I impl uh, implement that locally. Global commitment to have all our vehicles to be zero emission, all our life cycles, so all our dealers and everyone we touch to take them along and be zero emission, all our operation to be zero emission, then also create this recycling-based society and a better nature and everything in harmony with nature and reduce water use. So overall, creating that vision and how, it, how a 2050 could look like. So with that, I guess important is then to invest into research and development. So we've uh, invested quite a lot in hydrogen uh, development. We developed this Mirai, you might have heard of, which is called the future which we're heavily promoting, and on the next slide you see a picture of that. Um, that was actually launched on the 30-year anniversary of Back to the Future, because you can actually fuel the Mirai with uh, hydrogen, which can be made out of all sources, including waste. So the uh, Back to the Future comes true. Um, so with that, having all this, um, having this availability, then working closely with governments and industry, to really try to implement and leapfrog of this technology, make it work, and educate people that it's easily available and um, it's actually usable today. Um, so with that, the last slide is basically then moving from that, not just looking at the, pro uh, the product itself, but Toyota currently is on a big transition to actually a mobility solutions company. So not just vehicles or owned vehicles, it's also the solution, a combined solution of all principles and not just vehicles. So um, with that, um, creating in 2050 that vision, and if I'm si still sitting here 2050, um, I hope these um, challenges came true and that we achieved all our ambitious goals because they are ambitious, especially with the life cycle emissions, we're trying to achieve zero emissions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So, Chris, how did leadership from, uh, at the city level from organisations like City of Sydney start to translate to leadership at higher levels of government in Australia? So, to do that or to answer that question, I, I really wanted to paint a picture about 2050. But uh, first of all, I think we'll come back to late June in 2019 when uh, Council declared a climate emergency. And this was really um, not something that the council particularly wanted to do, but it was a consequence of the lack of action that had happened for the decades before, before then. Um, at the same time, it was also revising its 2030 strategy to 2050. And uh, um, as the city is known for, it had been listening to many of its stakeholders, from business to residents to visitors um, to people from uh, other areas within Metro Sydney to people out in the country as well, because everyone feels a sense of ownership of the centre of the city. And what was coming through loud and clear there was that people wanted a green city. And I, when I say a green city, what led was a physically green city, trees uh, and green walls around the city. And so when you walk through the city in 2050, 
uh, because there won't be any cars in the city in 2050, uh, because uh, the delivery vehicles will be restricted to after hours or after uh, late at night. Um, there will be huge levels of economic activity because the studies um, that showed that as you um, allow people to enjoy your city, actually the economic activity within the city also increases. And so um, the livability of the city actually increased when the city started to take really serious action on climate change. Um, that led to um, an understanding that um, in order to green the city, um, that 80% of its carbon footprint was actually because of the electricity that was coming into the city. And, uh, and so through its partnerships at the city, um, it used its, all its influence it could in order to procure more uh, green energy. And the grid was also greening, but the grid wasn't greening at a fast enough rate in order to achieve our climate targets. And so um, through the will of the people who were saying that they want to see less voluntary action and they actually want to see more mandated action, the, uh, the building standards of the city were increased in order to ensure that the efficiency of buildings going forward when combined with um, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the grid were able to meet its Paris commitments. Um, beyond that, the city acknowledged that it was only one council of about 31 councils in Metro Sydney. It was only one city of many capital cities in Australia and one city in a global context. So it used its partnership and influencing capabilities to help others to create um, uh, sustainable cities as well. In particular in Sydney, um, it, it extended a hand of friendship out to um, country, country institutions, the Country Women's Association, um, NGOs who also help climate action in the country and started to rebuild the bond between the city and the country. And through that collaborative approach was able to build the consensus around climate action and really drive the city forward. And so I think that's a, that's a, a you know, uh, part of the recipe anyway in terms of getting a, a city to a sustainable future. Thanks, Chris. So, Muriel, back in 2019, the, no, 2018 even, the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recommended that countries like Australia needed to get out of coal power by 2030 if we were to have any hope of meeting, of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. Did we do it and how did we do it? We did do it. Um, and it's not as hard as it uh, might seem. Um, our trajectory at the moment, if uh, you can put the, the first slide up, our trajectory at the moment is, uh, is to have zero coal by 2050 without doing much other than wait for the current plants to shut down at their scheduled rate. So our job then was um, to accelerate the coal plants closing. Um, and what we did was uh, use the current fossil fuel subsidies uh, that are about $1,000 per person per year in Australia and used that to incentivise or to help the towns and cities that already had 100% renewable energy targets and so on. I think we've got 100 communities, uh, community groups. 105 community groups in Australia already with 100% renewable energy targets. Uh, so we've already got the groundswell of public 
uh, and community uh, wanting to do this, but as we saw at the last election, while you know the tension between wanting to do something on, for climate change and the job losses that were associated with uh, the coal mining sector in particular, the Adani mine and the Hunter Valley mines were particularly in, in that election cycle. So we had to do something to create new jobs in those uh, areas so that the people who uh, were going to lose the coal jobs knew that there were exciting, much nicer jobs for them to move to and that they were going to be helped with that transition. So the fossil fuel subsidies that currently support the coal industry went uh, to support the development of new industries in renewable energy and recycling and uh, the the production of uh, the, we've, Australia has a lot of resources that are used for batteries and, and solar cells and so on. So we developed those industries in Australia rather than always shipping raw materials out and buying them back as finished products. So it started with community and we leveraged that to the point where, well, maybe federal government climate policy was not as critical a component as other things, even though I think by the time the community is really on board with climate change, politicians get dragged along. Thanks, Muriel. So, Brendan, we've heard a lot about technology. Let's turn to the biosphere. Who really stepped up and took on deforestation and degradation? How did that happen? Yeah, well, it was very, it's a very interesting story. And, of course, my memory is very hazy. I'm a very old man now. It's 2050. That was a long time ago. But, you know, the, the, the change was so transformational that it's engraved forever in my mind as to what happened. But the turning point was an extraordinary day. It was the annual conference of the parties for the Climate Change Treaty in December 2020. And for the first time in the history of the treaty, all the national governments agreed that policies around forests and climate would be determined by science rather than political horse trading, which is what had been going on for 30, 40 years. Now, this was... Why was this the turning point? Well, people started to look at what role forests actually play in the globe and carbon cycle. And we heard earlier that <clears throat> in the modelling that uh, we couldn't have achieved it without the forest. Well, why is that? Well, this is where the numbers are very important. So I think we heard that back in 1920, there was a global, what was called the global carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. That was the, if you like, think of it positively, that was the permissible emissions. That's how much carbon we could use and still stay within 1.5 degrees. And it was about 100 billion tonnes of carbon, which sounds a lot, but not when you think we were burning 10 billion tonnes a year. So it was only about a decade's worth. <clears throat> well, everyone had been thinking about, we've got to stop fossil fuel emissions, which is true, and they'd not quite listened to the scientists who were telling them about how much carbon is in forests. So there's about, four, back in 19... In 2020, there was about 4 billion hectares of forest, which stored about 
uh, above and below ground about 800 billion tonnes of carbon. There was about 400 billion tonnes in the living biomass, and there was about 200 billion tonnes just in tropical forest carbon. <clears throat> so there was actually twice as much carbon in trees, in tropical forests, as there was in the global carbon budget. So even if we had eliminated using fossil fuel and had kept deforesting and degrading our natural forests, we would have breached 1.5 degrees. Actually, we would have breached 2 degrees. So how did we do that? Well, there are a number, a number of key steps uh, that the world community took. They immediately put a moratorium on, on deforestation. And whilst that moratorium held, they put in, they negotiated a, a global forest accord that uh, enabled the world to deal with how they would meet the growing need for food supply without clearing more forest, by making better use of existing cleared land, much of which was degraded. And then secondly, uh, if we were going to stop um, logging and degrading forests, where would we get our wood from? Well, the scientists pointed out a very simple fact that Back in 1920, 50% of our wood supply came from plantation, woody crops that we planted, that only covered 7% of earth. So by doubling that to 14%, we could actually meet all our wood supply needs, and that meant we didn't have to use for industrial purposes a natural forest. So what, what was the result of ending the, not just the, not just deforestation, but actually land uses which degraded the forest. Turns out most of the carbon is in the biomass of big old trees. So if you log and get rid of the big old trees, there goes your carbon. Uh, well, we immediately uh, avoided about a billion tonnes of emissions every year just from stopping deforestation and degradation. And that was just an extraordinary outcome uh, uh, when you look at what the global carbon budget was. But there was more, because once we, uh, uh, of the four billion hectares of forest, two-thirds of it had been heavily logged and overused. That meant it had enormous sequestration potential. So by you know, taking our foot off the throat of forests and stop you know, ending what we were, uh, the logging and uh, degradation we were doing, just letting that degraded forest regrow soaked up another four billion tonnes of carbon a year. So simply by letting natural forests do their thing, we were getting a five billion tonne carbon a year mitigation benefit. And over the course of 20 years, globally, from 2020 to 2050, that, that was about 30% of the solution. 20, 30% of the solution came from simply better managing forests. And there was one more thing that we had to do uh, in order for those benefits to actually be registered. Um, people will be well aware now because this has been so well um, 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 brought into the education system. We have a whole generation of people who, who are now climate change literate and understand the history of what we went through. But, you know, as I mentioned, back in 2020, um, can you believe it, the, the rules and the guidelines and the system of carbon accounting that was set up to govern how we did our national greenhouse gas inventories was perverted. It's true. It wasn't based upon science. So it enabled people to do all this funny accounting stuff so that not all the real emissions coming from the land sector were, were seen. And, and the good work people were doing to avoid emissions were kind of um, covered over. 
So we fixed the accounting rules, we fixed the guidelines so that when people avoided emissions, that was recorded. And when people did something that actually caused emissions, that was recorded. And, and one of the really important um, uh, actions that came from fixing the rules, fixing the loopholes in the accounting system, was, um, and again, people are going to find this hard to believe, but in 1920, this is true, I'm not making this up, um, old growth forest in the USA was clear felled, chipped, turned into these little wood pellets, pumped into a ship, sailed across the Atlantic to Britain, where they were fed into power stations and burnt to produce electricity. Right? And America didn't have to account for the emissions from wood chipping the forests. And the UK didn't have to account for the emissions from burning the wood because burning forests for biomass in 1920 was considered clean energy. It's true. Anyway, all those loopholes were fixed. Um, the forest sector got fixed. Um, the world community was supplied with food. We could end deforestation. We could supply the world with the woody fibre it needed for manufactured wood products. And uh, forests were able to make their contribution to um, the mitigation solution. Great. So Sven, a question for you. you we've been focusing mostly Australia-wide, but um, looking globally and looking back, which countries played the biggest leadership role in limiting the climate crisis? Um, the developing countries. Because um, the, if you see in history uh, who developed actually the technology um, of renewables, um, they were all small countries. And there was all engineering uh, from small countries. Not a single big country was actually involved. Uh, what, just in the forefront was Denmark. Um, it's the size of an average Australian farm. Um, but it's a country um, which actually um, implemented the first electricity-producing uh, wind turbines um, in a scale that is actually usable. Um, and then from 2020 onwards, or actually from 2016 onwards, um, most developing countries um, were um, moving towards renewables. Um, it started with uh, China. At that time, China had half of the renewable energy market. Um, but then it was actually small countries, small developing countries, who realized that uh, renewable energy is um, A, cheaper, B, it's quicker to build, because if uh, you build, if you plan to build a, a coal power plant um, until you have the first kilowatt hour of electricity in the grid, on average that takes seven years. In, the in, those, in those seven years, you sink all the money, or you plan all your, uh, you plan all your money. You don't get a single kilowatt hour more electricity in the system, but your population grows and your brownouts and blackouts uh, more frequent. So they, they realize. Um, so solar and wind and other renewables can actually follow the demand much quicker and it's cheaper, and therefore they kicked in. And in, in, in uh, 2019, um, more than 60% of the renewable energy market was actually from, from non-OECD developing countries. And, and that actually triggered, again, um, a development to the, um, OECD, to the industrialized countries who actually started um, the renewables, but then dropped the ball sometimes uh, around 2015. 
<laughs> okay, so my final question before we throw it over to you guys uh, is one for the whole panel. So what was the one technology or solution that played a major role in achieving a safe climate by 2050 that we just weren't particularly aware of back in 2019, 2020? It was really funny. It was the human brain. <laughs> <laughs> in politicians, perhaps. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I think also computers, because um, it, it's actually... Um, I'm sort of an older generation. I studied engineering without touching a computer. Um, so I did everything sort of by hand and uh, writing and calculator. I uh, had no computer in my study. Um, and at that time, it would have been really problematic uh, to combine solar and wind with um, sort, of, sort of those system integration. But now, um, there's so much sort of software and so much computing capacity available that you can actually do system integration, which wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been possible like 20 years ago. I would say, yeah, as well, like um, there's no one technical solution. I think all solutions are equally important um, to get us to 2050 and to this. And, and with the computer power, I totally agree. It's more like how do we, there's so much information out there. And even if I need a graph, for you know, um, climate change-related data, it's so hard to find. There's just so much information. I think computers really have the power to just actually combine all that, and uh, that might be some kind of leadership needed to actually sort out all that data, put it all together, and if I want to do something, or I can put my situation in, and the computer would spit out what exactly, how, do, how, how would my ideal scenario look like? Um, under which I can live a zero-emission life. And that, that will be different for everyone, because everyone will live somewhere else, or like, like in, in regards to mobility, has to move a different way. Some people are disabled and can't even get out of bed. Some people, you know, like to just live, work at home, they don't need a car. I mean, it's all different. So like one solution where I can plug in, this is my lifestyle, what, what, what do I do? What does it, what's the solution? Like, how, do, how is my life zero emission? That's what I think. Uh, I, there was a couple of things in terms of what enabled us to manage the forest challenge, which is really a land use challenge. <clears throat> and so maybe there were three things, and one of them uh, isn't so much technology, but I think a, a attitude. Um, it's about having a more respectful long-term view of the land and, and um, being more mindful of, of the long-term productivity of the land. I mean, we wasted just too much land back, back in the early part of this century. Um, too much land was just being degraded and, and, and left to waste. And we'd go onto the new green field and, and, and clear that rather than trying to make the best use of the, of the land that we had. So that was kind of a mindset. A lot of that drew upon traditional knowledge of Indigenous Australians, the, that caring for country concept, um, which kind of got picked up mainstream, I guess, through land care in regional Australia. And that, that actually grew and blossomed and, and became very influential. Um, uh, a, a second is actually satellite imagery, because we were only able to really gauge the scale of the deforestation, deg degradation problem once we started to get these global... Um, coverages from sat satellite-based imagery 
that could actually track uh, uh, and help us understand um, what was going on. Yeah, so they were, they were two things that made a huge difference. I'd say um, <clears throat> the philanthropic industry from the US realised that in 2030 that Australia would be responsible for 17% of the global emissions because of the export of its fossil fuels and realised that the population actually wasn't that big and there was a smaller number of people that needed to be influenced in order to create change. And so they invested a huge amount of money in investing in changing the dynamic in Australia, changing the conversation. I think to that, um, it's actually not a technology. I think it's going to be about partnerships and uh, people working together. Like I said before, with you know, as a council, we need to work with the other 31 councils. That's probably our first, you know, well, first of all, with our residents and our businesses, which we already do, but then broadening that out. And, you know, at the moment, um, councils are really trying to change legislation with one hand tied behind their back. We, we don't have the power to change energy and water standards in residential buildings. We don't have the power to put forth um, planning controls for commercial buildings either without going through a gateway process. And we've been blocked from increasing our standards from the state government by doing that. And so what happens is we get collective power between the councils and everyone puts up the same wording, the same council resolution to the same council meeting on the same night and we get a, uh, a mass, I suppose, change in how the dynamic works and it gives the people a voice. Local government is the closest level of government to the people and, um, and that voice needs to be heard more loudly and strongly. I should say to that the, the technology that's going to make it change is that <clears throat> everyone... <clears throat> including people in this room this evening, are going to realise that actually um, that the technology side is probably the easier part of the equation. The harder part of the equation is influencing the decision makers. And so it's actually about investing in yourselves to make yourselves the best leaders, the best influencers, uh, the best speakers, the best media tarts, the mess whatever, you know, in order to create change. And, and that is what's going to change it, not necessarily a particular technology. <laughs> I was thinking of a technology, although I don't disagree with <laughs> what Chris has just said and, and what others have said, but we focus very much, particularly the discussion in Australia is on electricity, and we forget that uh, something like 40% of the energy that we use is for heating and cooling, and so I was thinking, what would what would uh, it be like if we had uh, a new insulating technology that could wrap around our buildings or be used in all our commercial and industrial and residential buildings to totally eliminate that heating and cooling load from our energy budget? That would immediately make it so much easier then to supply the other 60% that, uh, of our energy needs by the renewable energy electricity and other technologies that we focus most of our, our discussions about in Australia. So that was what I was thinking, this, this, this new technology. The, the other more general view follows on from the discussion about the community driving change uh, and I, the way our uh, energy discussions have been held in Australia, it's very much this top-down approach of, of 
of mega builds and you know very large installations uh, very large new hydro systems very large new transmission lines do we need a very large new coal-fired power plant and so on and do, should we go nuclear which is even larger so it, which is totally at odds with what we're seeing coming from the community, which is saying we want local solutions, we want things under our control in our area using our own labour, our own resources, uh, and, and that gives you a very different um, outcome and a different way of designing your system to supply a, a much more autonomous regions of... Uh, of local demand and local supply. And uh, I see that as another part of the solution. Okay. Thank you. So I've worked in climate change for about 17 years, and I'm 34, so half of my life, and I learnt things tonight. Um, what more do you want to learn? We've got a few hands that have gone up straight away. We've got a couple of roving mics, but I'm going to ask you to hold on to your hats for just 30 seconds more. We, I want you to turn to the person sitting the other side of you and go, what is one thing that came up for you in that panel discussion? And just get you know, your top mind thought off your chest. Okay, uh, who have we got first? Who's got the mic? Um, and what I will invite you to do is to say your name and your question and um, really want you to keep it short and snappy, just a, a sentence or two. My name is David Sinnott. Uh, impressed as I have been with the possible future, and Toyota uh, sounds absolutely remarkable in your ambitions, but uh, Muriel Watt, I think, struck the most important point affecting our moving, making a first move, jobs for miners. I believe uh, the last election our federal election, showed getting jobs for miners led to the government we have with its power for Adani. And Adani is just one step towards about another eight mines getting on behind. So we need the vision of Toyota providing jobs for people as you said jobs for miners. The thing that impressed me with the last election, there was no company, there was nobody saying, hey, there is an alternative to mining coal. There is an alternative market for it. We have seen in Victoria uh, village systems, and my question is, <laughs> I, I believe that in India, there's something like about 630 villages which could do with village-sized solar or wind power because the, the uh, distance and the cost of providing a grid has really slowed that down. And why isn't industry seeking opportunities like that? I can, I can you, you want to go and 
Um, the company I work for is doing exactly that. Uh, we work in developing countries and in the Pacific where people really want to have renewable energy. They want to have 100% renewable energy because they don't want to be paying all their GDP on fossil fuel uh, purchases. So, um, yes, I think uh, that that's a big trend around the world um, to go back from this idea that extending the grid to everybody was the, the best way of supplying power now that we've got new technologies that um, can provide secure and reliable and sustainable power, we don't need to do that anymore. In Australia, uh, really, you know, we, we have the same problem here. In New South Wales, something like 70% of our grid supplies 5% of the load. So, you know, we need to do what we're preaching others to do ourselves, to think about um, where the loads are, what you do to supply that energy and how to do it more efficiently than we've done in the past. Yeah, and sort of more the political aspect. Um, I think, um, oh, let's say I'm sort of a halfway outsider still to Australia. It's only four years here. Um, and um, I was... I'm sometimes surprised that some myth is sort of really going around all the time. One, everyone religiously believes that Australia has the highest electricity prices in the world. It's complete nonsense. Um, it's not true, full stop. In my home country, it's, it's more expensive. Um, and in Denmark and in most European countries, it's more expensive. Um, secondly, that um, India is not going towards renewables. That's actually not true. India actually has a moratorium on coal, Uh, on new coal power plants um, because uh, renewables are cheaper. Um, and the market for, for, for uh, renewables in India is quite huge. Um, and they also manufacture in India. Um, so they actually have a ministry which is not very powerful for, for renewables as well. So um, it is actually going ahead. And uh, in terms of employment, I think that's something we need to also, as academia, need to communicate better because um, the employment um, for renewables is more sustainable and long-term and actually more jobs in there. Again, uh, Germany had 550,000 mining worker jobs in 1970. Today, it's 5,000. Um, and there are about 400,000 people working in the renewable industry. The German car industry has one million. So you see the size of the German renewable industry is actually really big. And Australia has a huge potential to go in this direction um, because uh, Australia can export renewable energy um, in form of hydrogen or whatever. Um, so the potential is huge, and I think we simply need to communicate that as academia as well much better than there's a, that there's a huge chance. And it's not just engineers. You need so many different jobs. We actually have done for this uh, work... I, um, showed as I presented, we actually have done a breakdown of what kind of jobs are required and how many jobs will be lost and how many jobs will be gained. And on a global level, we had 12 million jobs more. Um, so it is actually a matter of better informing people um, and showing what we uh, could do with renewables. And I think when in terms of self-critique, uh, um, maybe we as academia haven't done a good enough job to communicate that. 
Yeah, I just wanted to answer, David, was it? Yeah, to the um, industry perspective, because with um, Toyota's challenge, it's not that we, that we don't do anything. We really tell clearly that, hey, there's no... Um, we don't want um, dirty coal mines because, well, we, don't, we want renewable energy. We want zero emission. That's our uh, publicly recognized goal. So we're not supporting any other industry other than uh, that helps us achieve zero emission. I actually went to a climate reality um, training course about three weeks, four weeks ago in Brisbane, met Al Gore in person, and he mentioned that Australia has the super, the, the um, what, how, how did you word it? The potential to be the superpower in providing power in form of hydrogen to the world. So that, that is something. And also from, uh, from a renewable energy market, he mentioned that um, in America, the, the biggest job rise is for solar installers, and the second one is for wind turbine engineers. So there is actually a market growing, and with industry actually committing to these goals, that does shift. While we can't stop a mine, um, we certainly can send out the signals and be clear that industry is, is ready and willing to do something. We just need the leadership to hook on as well, and then we create the momentum. So it's, um, we acknowledge totally that there's jobs in the hydrogen industry, for sure, and in, in the renewable energy industry. Can I just make a really quick comment? I just think we um, sometimes conflate the two issues of our own generation of electricity here in Australia and also the coal mining for export. And so um, I believe that the, a lot of the conversation in Queensland was about coal mining for export. I think in the Australian context, um, it would be great from academia to get a really clean, clear number that says this is how many jobs per megawatt hour are in existing coal generation versus other versus renewables. And Bill Clinton did that for the C40 cities about a decade ago in one of the speeches he gave, and he, he, it was in the order of um, six to seven times the number of jobs. Now, I've searched and searched and searched the Australian sort of literature for a similar figure. I can't find anything, so maybe that's the challenge to the academia side. Uh, who's next? Next question. My name's Lucy. I'm a journalist. I actually live in the States, but I'm Australian originally. Thank you all to all of the panellists. I'm thrilled that you managed to get us through to 2050 in such good shape. Um, if I can ask you just to cast your minds back to that moment in 2020 when Donald Trump was re-elected... And, um, and when Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil committed to the farm lobby to clear yet more land, and when Malcolm Turnbull made a surprise comeback, or people who we wished were Malcolm Turnbull but were actually even worse on, on climate change policy. Dr. Watt, I take your point that um, communities um, are where these things can begin, especially living in the States under Donald Trump, if I see what states and governors and mayors have done in response to his stance on climate change. But I'm curious to know from all of the panel, what was this magical moment where cooperation at the national political level and at the international political level tipped the balance and um, things started to change? So I should, uh, you know, have 
had full disclosure. So I, I, one of my roles is I'm am on the IPCC sixth assessment report. I'm uh, in working group two, which is uh, impacts, vulnerability, and adaptation, and I'm a coordinating lead author for chapter 11, which is Australasia, which is our region. And we've just finished what's called the zero order draft, which is kind of the first pass at the assessment um, before it gets open for the multiple uh, uh, peer reviews over the next three years. And, you know, uh, if you think about it, we've had one degree of warming already, right? I mean, I know uh, what I'm saying is the turning point is when people just realise the, the risks we now face. Basically, fear. Um, I know we don't want it to be that. I know we want it to be that we can, we can respond positively to a to a, to a positive vision, but, you know, I'm, um, uh, you know, being, you know, uh, I'm publicly an optimistic, private, so sorry, I'm, I'm publicly optimistic, privately, I think it's going to be, you know, the fear that comes from realising the impacts that, not that we will face, but we currently face. We've had one degree of warming and we've had a five-fold increase in heatwave events in Australia. We now have a new category of fire hazard called um, catastrophic. Right? Uh, we never used to have a fire hazard category called catastrophic. It was extreme. Right? Uh, we, we, we had to invent a new colour bar on the temperature chart because we're now getting maximum temperatures that we've never experienced before. Um, you know, far north Queensland in December had a, a catastrophic fire event. Uh, places burnt for a rainforest burnt where there was no record of it burning. In the charcoal, in the soil charcoal, no burning. No Aboriginal story of it burning. A month later, they had an unprecedented rainfall event. The Bureau of Meteorology had to issue two special reports, one in December on catastrophic, you know, unique catastrophic fire event in far north Queensland. A month later, unique flooding event in far north of Queensland. So, and that's with one degree of warming. So what happened in 2020 was that people started to take the science seriously, the IPCC science seriously, not just about the mitigation, which is working group three, uh, and, and the carbon balance, which is working group one, but the impacts uh, and the risks, which is working group two. So that's what happened in 2020. They turned their attention to working group two and took that science seriously. And that fits very well. I was uh, lead author of the IPCC special report renewables, um, and... Um, I did the um, scenario review, um, and I saw that, um, weird, the International Energy Agency always thinks that the market, the wind market of the last year is the maximum for the next 30 years. And they, do, they did this over more than 20 years. And there are nice graphs now available. You say, okay, that's our projection for the wind industry in, until 2040 another try until 2040, another try, and it was always the highest market uh, volume of last year. It was projected 30 years in the future, and the same for solar. For some reason, other technologies grew, um, like coal or gas. Um, so I think one of the uh, problems we overcome at that time is that we actually um, thought about, when we did the modeling, um, about the best economic uh, and uh, so social outcome and that economics for one company might not be the good economic for the whole uh, country or for the whole region. And I think that's very important to have those different views 
on uh, we, uh, how do we actually implement it. And then I'm actually quite optimistic um, in terms of a few technology uh, among solar photovoltaics, obviously. Solar photovoltaics has been growing in the last 10 years like crazy. Uh, hardly anyone uh, predicted it correctly. And then uh, it's still not over. And I think um, sometimes there is a tipping point where, at least from the energy side, not from the, from the land use, but from the energy side, it can grow massively. If we, if we would have thought that 10 years ago, everyone has a computer and a phone uh, with cameras and, and all this stuff, uh, nobody would have believed that. Um, so I think technology can be implemented much quicker than uh, most of us will think. I'm going to summarize and say three things, and then we're going to do a, a one final question because we're running out of time. I think there are three things that were the tipping point. First, business learned how to make money out of climate solutions. Second, the climate impacts were visible to everyone and when people got really scared. And third, the social movements got really serious. We're starting to see it with Fridays for the Future, Extinction Rebellion, but they just grew and grew and grew. How's that for a summary? And let's do one more. Can I add to that? I want to add to that, sorry, because I just think, um, you know, I made some comments before. I think the, the rural industries in Australia have a really big role to play. And uh, for many years, they seem to have quite a, um, what I perceive to be an unusual position on climate. They're the ones who are being impacted the most by this. Agriculture is all about the extremes. And when you get those extreme temperatures, you have lost that crop for for that particular year. And so that has a huge impact on their cash flows. Um, through some of the work we've done, I've, I've um, actually been able to meet with some of the rural farmers and, and some of what I would say the smarter farmers are realising that the installation of solar um, on their farms uh, by energy companies allows them to uh, flatten out their um, incomes because it's less variable than the agriculture that they've primarily um, been farming for many years. And I think... Uh, the voice of those smarter farmers will come to the fore and um, be acknowledged uh, by, their, uh, I suppose, the political party that seems to represent them the most, and that will start to change the politics in Australia. And that's what I, I think needs to be a focus of some of the NGOs in Australia. Can I just add one trend that I see that I think is going to shape things from this year? Uh, is the increasing number of industries that are pledging to be 100% renewable. That's a, a major new trend uh, and some of the, uh, not only uh, Toyota, and, but in, in Australia, uh, big industries of, of all sorts are moving towards renewables. Now that is something the politicians can't then, you know, ignore. Uh, until now, they've just kind of said, oh, it's just rooftop panels for people and, you know, it makes them feel better so we can ignore that. But when there's a massive upswell of, of change in industry itself, uh, then I think politicians uh, uh, ignore that at their peril in terms of, of what driving the economy and, and the decisions that are being made in that direction. So I don't know, that partly answers, I think, what you were looking for in terms of how do you, how do you get the political momentum, what are the things that are happening now that are getting that change? All right, one more question. Sorry, excuse me, I was next. Excuse me, sir. 
Um, uh, so, hi, I'm Tubes. I'm a creative writing student here um, at UTS, and last time I helped to organise students um, going out on strike on March 15 to join the school kids going on strike. Um, and I guess it's because we have a lot of Indigenous land research um, here that shows that actually no market mechanism was able to put water in the communities out in rural New South Wales who just lived through the hottest summer, yet again, no water. There had to be water delivered by bottles, by various um, organising groups. And I guess my, my um, question is, um, we know that the union here just passed a motion in support um, here at UTS at Sydney Uni, also the Maritime Union, so the Wharfies, passed a, union, uh, passed a motion in support of the action on September 20 to say we want to join the join the global climate strike on September 20. We want to listen to school kids. We're not going to sell out their future. And I was just wondering, um, you've spoken a lot about the fact that there was amazing, powerful social movements. Um, and this is a question for both um, Dr. Wadden and Dr. Um, uh, Sven. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, uh, who came out on strike on September 20 and what other things did people do on an industrial um, level to, you know, uh, fight for the change um, we needed? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, in contact. In, in Germany, my old um, um, home, Fridays for Future is actually quite big. And uh, in my old hometown, Hamburg, Six or 8,000 students are every Friday now since uh, um, several months uh, there. And there is now a movement Friday for um, um, scientists for future, uh, of German scientists, and I signed to that. Um, and some uh, asked me, uh, okay, are you going on strike um, as a scientist? And say, well, actually, my duty is to work more, um, <laughs> to actually um, do more for the solutions. Um, and... Uh, I think uh, it's, it's good to have that sign because it's already uh, influencing um, the European politics. Um, and I think if it grows bigger here, it can influence definitely uh, local politics as well. Because um, I think the European, in the European case, um, the politicians on, and on parties realized that they sort of forgot one generation. Um, and I think they're waking up to that problem right now. Well, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's very important that young people are, are mobilising and, and getting active. And again, this is something uh, I think that should be encouraged because we're not talking about anything radical here. We're, we're talking about, you know, um, a real problem. And I, uh, and I try and explain this to people by... Um, and, and I tell this story to um, school school. I've met with a lot of school groups have come to see me. Um, there's two things we do. Whenever we have a, any kind of public forum, I always have school children up on the stage uh, to give them a voice. I think this is something we can all try and do. But the other is just to tell them a bit of history. So, and my, my favourite historic climate... I also have two climate change jokes, which I won't tell because they're not funny. Um, but my favourite climate change historic note is, that you know, uh, who's the greatest... Who, who was the first... Um, political eco-warrior. Eco it was Margaret Thatcher, right? Because she, uh, and you should look, Google her, Google Margaret Thatcher UN, and just have a read of the speech she gave at the UN in the late 80s when the first IPCC report came out. And uh, she actually, you know, she said, we've got a serious problem. And she set up an all-party parliamentary committee in the UK, which sits today. You might notice there's a Tory government, but the Tor 
but the British Parliament voted a climate emergency, right, with the Tory majority. That date backs to Margaret Thatcher. Her first degree was in chemistry. She took the science seriously. So, you know, of course the students should be out there um, making our politicians listen to them. This is a real problem. You know, the, they're completely backed by the science. And, uh, you know, 30 years ago, there were politicians like the Iron Maiden in the UK who were, who, um, were in complete agreement with them. Thank you, Brendan. Um, we're going to wrap it up, and I'm just going to make a few remarks. I, I think it was a really great last question. Who here um, knows about the school strikes around the world and Fridays for the Future? Who here is going to come to the school strike uh, on Friday 20th of September? Who here is going to bring their friends and their work colleagues? <laughs> Okay, well, I encourage more hands and more people to get involved because, you know, we can work on this professionally, um, but, you know, the biggest challenge that we face is not technology. We have the solutions. We've heard the solutions here tonight. Um, you know, energy solutions, uh, reforestation and stopping deforestation solutions, natural solutions, community solutions, industry solutions, local, national, state and international government solutions. Uh, what we need is the political will to do something about it, and that's where we need to be not just professionals um, and students, but citizens and activists. I've been a climate activist for 17 years, half of my life. I wish the school strikes were happening when I was 17, because then we wouldn't be experiencing the degree of climate change that we are right now. But I suppose I choose hope, and I choose to think that we will get to the vision that we painted tonight in 2050, because we have people like all of you here in the room who are spending significant portions of your life making those solutions happen. So I want to say thank you for coming. I want to um, invite you to say thank you to our panelists tonight. You've been listening to Talk of the Town featuring the UTS Big Thinking Forum, Saving the Climate. This talk was brought to you by the UTS Big Thinking Series. Sign up to the mailing list to hear about future events at events at uts.edu.au. For this and more Talk of the Town, go to 2ser.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Steph Leong. Thanks for listening.